Hey everyone, this is Dr. Hal. Welcome to the GeoTrek podcast. We recently recorded a podcast that introduced the topic of wildfires in the south central U.S. I conducted field work during a massive wildfire outbreak in Texas, documenting what the fires looked like on the ground, sharing insights about the impacts I found, and providing some interviews I recorded with firefighters, ranchers, water suppliers, and local residents. That first podcast focused a lot on the climate behind these wildfires and their impacts on the build environment. This new episode of the GeoTrek podcast is a companion episode to the first one, but this time we'll focus on the impacts of wildfire on biology and the larger surrounding ecology in the environment. I traveled back to the site of the 8,000-acre Christine, Texas fire two weeks after my first trip to see how it changed in that time and to learn about the environmental response to fires. I met up with a friend of mine who's an expert in grassland ecology to help me interpret the landscape. Dr. Kelly Lyons is a professor of biology at Trinity University in San Antonio. She's a botanist and ecologist who studies the influence of diversity on ecosystem functioning and invasive species dynamics. Her current research focus is on restoration of Texas grasslands and rangelands, with particular emphasis on interactions between plants and fungi. She served as a Fulbright Scholar in Sonora, Mexico, and her research has been supported with awards from NSF, USDA, NFWF, among others. Hey, before we get to that fieldwork segment with Dr. Kelly Lyons, I wanted to encourage you to please subscribe to this podcast. Your subscription helps us really monitor progress of how we're advancing with the podcast and also helps us form professional partnerships moving forward. Now, without further ado, let's pick up the conversation with Dr. Lyons out in the wildfire zone south of Christine, Texas, on the evening of Wednesday, March 30th, 2022. I'm here in the Christine, Texas burn zone from the March 2022 fires that were out here. There was 8,000 acres that were burned here. I'm here two weeks after the event with Dr. Kelly Lyons, professor of biology at Trinity University. Kelly, thank you so much for coming out here in the zone. I'm really interested to hear your perspectives on this fire zone as you see it. Well, I'm surprised that it was so complete, the fire. I mean, this I haven't seen all the sites, but this one's really, really burned and it's burned in the totality. Um, and when we arrived, you said, you know, maybe that was because there were so many fuels, right? Right. It's likely that there's a lot of, a lot more fuel on the ground than usual. And that was because we had so much rain last year, last summer, through the summer, which was a, kind of unusual, into the fall. And also likely because the socioeconomics that are affecting the cattle industry um, are causing there to be a lot less grazing than usual. I've heard like processing plants were shut down during COVID and that affected the whole supply chain, right? So maybe less demand for cattle ranching and maybe less cattle on the land grazing? Right, less cattle on the land because they don't want to they don't want to have to process them or hold on to them while they they can't be processed and then that as we're walking here the combination of a wet year last year and then a very dry fall and winter this winter there were a lot of fuels that probably burned a lot hotter and really kind of scorched the landscape right exactly they're fully fully dried out right so then they could catch fire more easily you know, I expected to see a lot of greenery two weeks after because so many people told me these fire zones are very resilient. When we got here, it still kind of looks like we're on the moon a little bit. It's mostly a charred landscape, but we do see a little bit of greenery here. Could you explain what we're seeing? 
Yeah, these are these are grasses that are that are non-native. I'm pretty sure this is buffalo grass. I can't really tell exactly, but it looks a lot like buffalo grass. And these have very very uh, long-lived below-ground resources, and so they can regenerate really quickly after a fire. As a matter of fact, this this species, buffalo grass, loves fire. And this is an invasive species that was introduced from Africa. Mm -hmm, that's right. And you were telling me, was this introduced, I think, in the 1950s when there was a big drought in this part of the United States? This one was introduced a little bit later, but we have other species that were introduced uh, very heavily during that drought period. And even before that, um, the USDA developed a lot of species from the what we call Eurasia area. And there's KR bluestem, King Ranch, King Ranch bluestem, Clayburg bluestem. Um, Buffalo grass was developed later, and then we brought in Guinea grass. There's a lot of different ones out there that are invading these ecosystems. Were they purposely trying to get grasses that were more drought resistant because of what happened in the middle 20th century? More drought resistant and those invasive species, they tend to be introduced, what we say, without their enemies and they do better and they grow much more. They grow much more vigorously, have lots more biomass, and they tend to displace the native species. Does that surprise you that maybe we would see some invasives moving in uh, first, you know, after a wildfire like that? Well, it's particularly this one, the buffalo grass really loves fire and it responds to fire. It's so, not a good way to remove it. People used to think it was a good, using fire was maybe a way to remove the species, and it is a good way to clear the ground if you want to then seed other species. But generally, it regenerates really quickly and does well. In general, um, biologically, do fires add nutrients? Or are they? I've heard people say sometimes they can be good for the environment. Is that true? For this environment, and this is this environment is consisting of mostly fire adapted species, right? And we have seen a lot of woody species encroachment in these grassland ecosystems because they lack fire. So prescribed burning is terrific for these systems. Actually, it keeps them under control. Let's talk a little bit about that. Are, do you often see prescribed burnings in South Texas, or not really as much? We don't see a lot of prescribed burning in this area because people want to keep the fuel or keep the biomass. It's, it's two sides of the same coin, right? You either have biomass for cows or forage for cows or you have fuel for fire, right? And if you don't, if you want to run cattle on it, you don't want to burn it because you don't want to lose your the food for the cows. So your vegetation, your biomass, that's viewed as kind of a resource to help you know, provide nutrients for your cattle. So to burn that, people might look at that like you're, you're wasting a resource. Right, and despite this fact that the status of this buffalo grass is considered highly invasive, it is really good forage. Oh, that's really interesting. Um, and it, you were saying as well, just possibly one heavy rain could really bring some vegetation back to this area. Absolutely, and a lot of these plants are perennial, like that grass, is high, it's perennial, so it'll stay um, dormant and just die back to its below ground resources. But a lot of, there's also a lot of annuals in the system that will respond to fire. Kelly, what do you see when you look at some of these shrubs and bushes and these, these, you know, small trees on this landscape? Do you think a lot of them have survived? Do you think a lot of them maybe perished in the fire? I think there's going to be a lot of mortality here with the woody species, but I'd like to come back and check it out and see how they do. When we go over, say, to this yucca tree here, can we see if it survived or not, or do we not quite know? Uh, well, with the green, that helps a lot. But, I mean, you can pull on the leaves and see this one. That one probably will come back. I think these are going to come back because these have what's called a meristem, the growing point at the top. And if this is still green and it didn't get burned, then um, it'll be able to come back from this meristem at the top, this uh, the growth. See how light green it is in here and all these are new, new leaves. Do you think those green were already green pre-fire or do you think a lot of those burned back no, or grew back after? This is a very slow growing plant that was there before. So you have hope because you're seeing green in this plant that it, it probably likely survived. Yeah, but none of these other leaves will come back. <laughs> They'll be like after the Uri storm, snowstorm, they won't come back. But the tops look good of this one. I'm not seeing any any regrowth on any of these other ones yet though, on any of the other woodies. 
How does the landscape here, you know, deal with fire, say, compared to places like Arizona, California? Are there differences, you know, because drought and long dry spells are a big issue for much of the south central and southwestern U.S.? Are there differences within the region? Yeah, I was told today that buffalo grass is not, you're not allowed to grow it anymore in, in Arizona because one of the things that happens in that system is that typically you have like the saguaro cacti, right? And then you have space, bare ground between the cacti and then another cacti. What's happened with buffalo grass is it's introduced fuel between those those cacti and so the fires will just go contiguously through them and the, the those cacti don't have any tolerance to fire. I see so the buffalo grass kind of connect uh, the, just the fire through the whole landscape yeah, and just burn. To lose the saguaros which is they're so iconic and important for the tourist industry in Arizona they really don't want that buffalo grass there. When you said the buffalo grass is kind of being restricted or you know uh, against policy there so it, the buffalo grass we see here in Texas is it intentionally introduced or does it just kind of grow wild now after it's been introduced? I'm, I'm not aware if it's still I'm sure it's still available commercially but um, it's so widespread that you don't really need to reseed it. So in Arizona will they actually be trying to like eradicate it and tear it out or just not put new buffalo grass in? They are in Oregon Pipe National Park National Monument, I guess it is. Um, you know, they have a big crew of uh, retirees there, volunteers who go in and actually manually remove it. And so, and that's happening all throughout Arizona. So almost like they deal with invasive species in other areas, whether they're plants or animals and in, in some other areas of the country. Yeah, we've got problems everywhere <laughs> with those yeah. things. And people are always surprised when they show up and it's like, yeah, here they are. <laughs> what are one or two of the main points people should think about with these, you know, dry land ecosystems, you know, that are dealing with drought, looking ahead at more climate change, what should people be thinking about? Well, one of the messages I have is that these, the, we, we've got now a lot of introduced perennial grasses in these systems, and what I'd like to see is them stay perennial. There's a trend now to introduce more and more annual grasses, and that's going to be really dangerous, because imagine if an annual grass was here, it would burn up, and then it wouldn't regenerate like this perennial. Uh, so that changes the ecosystem completely, and that's what happened in California. California is almost now annual grasslands, and it used to be perennial. So grasslands that can regenerate faster, it's just a, a healthier thing? It's not just it, it's yeah. faster, it's, a, it's that those nutrients are retained below ground. And with annual grasses, there's so much of the biomass is above ground that they don't, once they're gone, they're gone until the next year. So with perennial, a lot of that's stored below ground, it's still there on the landscape even if it burns? Right, so these will regenerate much more quickly and responsive, be more responsive to fire. In general, what we're looking at here is more perennial, is that right? Uh, yep, everything, almost everything you see here is perennial at this point, but there will be annuals that will respond to that fire. Yeah. Um, you spent some time in Mexico as well, is that right? Are things different there as far as the landscape or even policy? I mean, just how might we see differences on a burn landscape down there? Well, it's very similar to here because this landscape is so influenced by Mexico as well and Mexican culture. And in Sonora, I was in Sonora um, and the plains of Sonora. And the diff I guess the big difference is that most of the people who are involved in ranching down there, um, they live on the land and they see, well, the people live here too on the land. But I was I was very familiar with the vaqueros who work there and they're, they are familiar with the big changes that have happened. But they value that forage that buffalo grass has brought. Oh, okay. So they, they recognize the trade-off of the loss of the native species, but there's so much value in the in the cattle industry there. It's it's one of the major economic drivers of that system. Do you see some changes maybe in the way the cattle industry is going in the U.S. versus Mexico in in some general ways? Well, a lot of times when we're not making money in industries here, they they end up being taken up by Mexico, and I think that that is a lot of what's happened. Is that well, when I was in Sonora, a lot of the calves were being developed in Mexico and Sonora and then they'd be sent here and, and finished off here and then sent to slaughter. 
Wow, that's really interesting. Thank you for your insights on this. This is really interesting to walk through this landscape, see it through your eyes, and then hear about some of these yeah. socio-cultural um, perspectives as well. Thanks for your interest. Wow. Okay. A lot of great stuff already in this episode. First of all, we learned that nature really surprises us. I've heard how resilient many ecosystems are to wildfire. And I thought if I met Kelly Lyons two weeks after the fire, we'd see all these amazing plants out there on the landscape. What we actually encountered looked more like the surface of the moon. Okay, not really. We weren't walking around on moon rocks, but we were still walking around on a landscape that looked very scorched without a lot of plants. She commented that the ecosystem was really one heavy rain shower away from regeneration, though. It just wasn't responding yet because the weather had been so dry there in South Texas. I found Dr. Lyon's perspective on buffalo grass to help me understand the environment and some insights about land management. I learned that it's an invasive grass, but really good forage for cattle grazing. This helped me see that people's perspective on good land, land management will depend on their relationship to the land. Dr. Lyons also helped me connect the dots on why Texas was experiencing so many intense wildfires during the spring of 2022. Obviously, hot, dry, windy weather is a factor, but so is the fact that last year was wet, enabling more fuel in the form of grasses and brush to grow up in the environment. Then she connected another dot I didn't see coming, the socioeconomic piece related to the cattle industry. COVID drastically reduced meat processing plant capabilities, as well as demand and market like the restaurant industry. Lower demand for beef meant less incentive for ranchers to get more cattle on the landscape. Less cattle meant less grazing, and suddenly we have an oversupply of very dry grasses that are fuels for wildfire in the south central U.S. This is amazing how all of this connects. Um, she really helped me connect those dots, and hopefully uh, you've seen that perspective as well. She also shared about how buffalo grass has become prohibited in Arizona as it provides a fuel source that endangers the iconic saguaro cactus with higher wildfire threat. As the sun set on our evening field work, our Geotrek team zipped off with Dr. Lyons to a local Mexican restaurant. Check this out. We were riding around in a Mustang convertible. Yeah, we were doing it in style. We got a sweet upgrade on our car rental from Galveston. Let me tell you, if you're ever uh, cruising around the the hills there in the, the plains of South Central Texas on a spring evening, a convertible is the way to go. We had a lot of fun. And at dinner, we continued our conversation where she, she suggested that I reach out to Matt McCaw, president of the Texas chapter of the Society for Ecological Restoration and Land Management Program Manager for Austin, Texas Parks and Recreation Department. She felt that Matt may have some more insights about the the connection between the environment and wildfire. My conversation with Matt was the perfect follow-up to the field work with Dr. Kelly Lyons. We dis uh, Matt and I discussed the nature of wildfires, how animals survive fires, the explosion of biodiversity often found after wildfires, the purpose of prescribed burning, and some insights into the field of ecological restoration. Let's pick up with my conversation with Matt McCaw now. Matt, I wanted to introduce you here. I really appreciate you coming on GeoTrack and taking a little time. We've been talking a lot about wildfires in recent weeks. Matt, you're the land management program manager with Austin Parks and Recreation. Appreciate you coming on GeoTrack. I had a few questions for you about what happens in a wildfire zone, really not, not only during the wildfire, but in the days and weeks afterwards. You know, just about two weeks ago, I was down in Christine, Texas. It's a small crossroads south of San Antonio. 
There was an 8,000 acre fire there. I was walking around a charred landscape that had just burnt the day before. And when I was walking around, I at first just assumed that most of the landscape would be dead. For example, I saw a fire ant mound. I put a little stick just touching it and all these ants came pouring out. So they were, they were very much alive. You know, and, and I began to see, wow, there's a lot more life in this landscape than I realized. Does that surprise you that these ants survived the fire? Any insights on maybe how they did that or, you know, how they adapt to wildfire? I'm not surprised at all. Ants are incredibly resilient. I mean, I've seen them clinging to debris and floods. Uh, it's insane. So about 20 years ago, more or less, I was, I helped with a pilot project that was looking specifically at the effects of uh, red imported fire ants, uh, the effects of wildland fire on wildland red imported fire ants. And we didn't publish anything because the results were absolutely nothing. There was no effect whatsoever. Um, how are they able to, to survive fire? I, the first thing that comes to mind is soil is an incredible insulator. So much more than a centimeter or so below the surface, um, the temperature doesn't change for the most part. Also, I would have, I'm not an entomologist, but I would assume they have some food stores that they're able to rely on until the landscape begins to recover again. But yeah, absolutely. They just hunker down underground and let the fire pass over them. Right, so they have the soil, they're underground, and, and the fire in a lot of cases passes over pretty quickly. So they're just able to kind of survive their underground or in their ant mound. Absolutely. And, now we're getting into kind of the realm of, well, that depends on the residence time of that fire. So residence time means the time that the fire is on top of any one point on the landscape. So fire ants live in grassy, sunny ecosystems for the most part. So they're dealing with grass fires. Grass fires move really quickly. So the residence time of grass fire is really short. Um, the, the flame lengths are really long, the fire is moving pretty fast, but the fire is only over or around an ant mound, maybe for a few seconds and then it's gone. So there's really not enough time for the soil and an ant mound to heat up. If you were talking about um, something where the fire is gonna stay in one place for longer, say if you have a brush pile, a large brush pile with a lot of woody debris and that fire is gonna burn for an hour, then you may start to cook the soil down deeper. But generally a natural, uh, a wildfire moving through natural fuels is not typically going to heat up the, the soil at all, unless you have something like a log that's going to sit there. So this residence time is really how long it stays over one, one point, and you're saying if it's just going through the grasses, it's going through and burning that fuel pretty quickly. Very fast, very fast, yeah. Yeah, so just not enough time to heat up the soil and that comes to a second animal that I encountered in the burn zone. There was a grasshopper bouncing around, you know, jumping around and I, I looked around I thought, man, it's burned for as far as I can see. I didn't know where that came from. I was wondering, did, did he or she hop in from outside the burn zone or possibly find refuge underground? It sounds like you're saying that if an animal finds a hole or a burrow that possibly they could survive these fires very well underground. I would think so. Again, grasshoppers are not my expertise, but I have noticed something similar. I can say that plenty of grasshoppers get cooked in a grass fire. And, and we often see uh, birds, like mockingbirds, for example, taking off the roasted grasshoppers after a fire, making use of that. So plenty of them do get cooked. 
but often, obviously, um, some of them are able to make it. Uh, I can say that I have seen at certain times of year, if there's a lot of grasshoppers that year, you'll see just waves of them hopping out in front of a moving flaming front. So some of them may be able to outrun it, get to a refugia that doesn't burn. Um, grasshoppers actually can fly quite a long way, so they may turn around and fly back over. I've seen them do that. They'll run away from it for a while and then turn and fly back over the flaming front. They may fly up into trees and take refuge. They may hide under debris that doesn't burn. Um, they and and again, they may be flying in from the perimeter. So I think all of those are potential. Sounds like they have a few strategies there to possibly escape the flames. Matt, what about larger animals? I mean, what are larger animals doing when a, when a fire comes? Are they often also trying to outrun it? Sometimes could they just uh, try to walk through it and get to the area that's already been burned? Yeah, I think one thing that people are often very surprised to learn because I think in our, in our common discourse, we portrayed fire, especially wildfire, as this huge like wall that can't be outrun uh, and you can't go around. But in reality, a wildland fire, and, and I'm, wildland fire means it could be an unintentional wildfire, it could be an intentional prescribed burn. But any fire burning in natural fuels is really pretty patchy. Um, it moves around, it has fingers, it has eddies, it goes this way, it goes this way. Um, it's patchy in how fast it moves, it's patchy in terms of what it moves. Usually there are refugia, there are areas within a burn area that don't burn at all or burn at lower intensity or higher intensity. So when you're actually in a burn area, and I can say this as a, as a prescribed fire manager, a wildland firefighter, it is actually typically quite easy just to move around the fire, find an area where the fire intensity is lower, step over it, get back in the, in the black area that's already burned. So I think most, you know, big animals, most mammals and, and whatnot have, just like the ecosystem they live in, they have evolved one way or another with fire as a natural process in the system. So they can, they can run out, run away from it, they can run around it, they can find refugia to hide, maybe they can go underground, um, jump back over it. Uh, it's really entertaining to watch bison deal with a grass fire. They, you know, bison and fire are almost the same process. Uh, in a way, and they are not bothered the least bit. They just step over it and go on about their day. Deer are able to crash through the brush and you never find them burned up, so I assume they, they find their way around. It's it's very, it's actually very rare to find anything larger than a grasshopper that's been killed by a wildland fire. Interesting, so it sounds like bigger animals or animals that can move quickly, they can, you know, have the they're resilient enough and, and maybe um, they have enough flexibility or movement enough to, you know, get to the side or, or go through the flames or something like that and kind of avoid being burned up. Yeah, absolutely. If, like I said, they evolved with fire as the natural process in their environment. So if they weren't able to avoid fire, they probably weren't, they're probably not around anymore, I guess. I'm sure. Saying. Yeah, that, that's a good way to put it. And that makes a lot of sense. What's the fastest that you've seen a fire move or the, a fire that you've heard of? I mean, when a fire is moving really fast, how fast can it move? So I actually went back and pulled some numbers. You always, I hear 
um, sort of anecdotes or legends of fires outrunning trucks driving down the road or whatever. And the reality is that um, even even in in a in a grass fires move the fastest. I'll say that. So uh, prairie fires, grass fires move the fastest. But even when the humidity is very low and the wind is very high, they still don't move faster than somebody than a human could outrun definitely. So I actually went back and I pulled some numbers. So what I have here is this is the Fireland Handbook. I don't know if you can see that. It's the Fireland Handbook Appendix B issued by the National Wildfire Coordinating Group. And, it, and this is a giant book of tables that we use to predict fire behavior and elements of um, that sort of thing. So I went back and I looked at uh, uh, just trying to give some frame of reference in terms of miles an hour. So in a short grass system, like you might find in north or west Texas, under typical fairly dry prescribed burn conditions, a fire might move three miles an hour. And for way more extreme wildfire conditions, when it's really rocking across the landscape, maybe six miles an hour. Uh, in a tall grass prairie, where the grass is up chest high, maybe even head high, almost that fast, maybe not quite. Um, then if you look in a woodland system, um, say timber litter, a closed canopy forest, maybe a post oak uh, woodland where the fire is carrying mostly through leaf litter, it burns incredibly slowly. Then we're not talking miles an hour, we're talking feet per hour. So in, in, a, in a really super dry rock and wildfire in say a post oak, uh, post oak forest, post oak woodland, we're looking at maybe 500 feet per hour. Wow, so there's a little bit of variability there depending on the wind speed, depending on the, the fuel, the type of, uh, you know, what's really burning up, it sounds like. Absolutely, and, and those numbers are for a contiguous flaming front moving across the landscape. One thing that, that fires will do, which I think lends to the kind of the urban legend of fires outrunning fire trucks, is they will spot. So what spotting means is that's when a, a piece of burning material breaks off and is carried by the wind and lands and starts another fire downwind somewhere. So when a fire is running, when a head fire is running across the landscape, sometimes these embers will fly as fast as the wind can carry them and a fire will spot out ahead of itself. So, so new um, fires are starting. Yeah, it's not, it's not really the flaming front is moving at a fast speed. It's that these sparks are traveling on the wind and starting new fires at a distance. Yeah, absolutely. And that's how fires move across highways, move across roads, over rivers, over creeks. Um, that's how most homes actually burn down in wildfires. Most homes don't burn because a huge wall of fire hits the side of the house. It's because this, uh, they call it an ember wash. It's a shower of embers that falls in all these tiny crevices, like the leaves in your gutter or the leaves or, or the grass that's touching up against your wood siding. So that's actually, so the embers play a bigger role in a fire as the, the big sort of a CNN worthy flaming front. That makes sense. And this might be, I presume, what could surprise people. I know there were some towns and some st structures lost in the fires two weeks ago. Several eyewitnesses said, wow, it really came in quickly. 
maybe it's not that the flaming, flaming front was moving quickly across the landscape, but maybe just how quickly maybe some of these embers came in and, and structures caught on fire, I'm, I'm presuming. Yeah, uh, maybe. And, and again, quickly is relative. So relative to our everyday lives, a fire moving at five miles an hour is pretty quick. That's true. You don't have that much time to prepare and, and get your personal belongings and get out of there, right? That's a great point. Yeah, yeah even especially if, and it may, may seem incredibly quick, if you're in a narrow one-lane road, one way in, one way out of your neighborhood, you're trying to get out at the same time as the first responders are trying to get in. We see basically traffic jams sometimes in wildfires where people are trying to get in and out and the roads are narrow and then everything can seem like it's happening real fast. Yeah, that's a really good point, uh, especially when, when you think about pinch points, evacuation routes, and uh, things like that as well. Man, yeah. Talking about these ecosystems, I mean, I know you, you have extensive experience working in the environment and working with fires and, and things like this. What are some of the major changes that you see with ecosystems after a fire has taken place? Yeah. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have to try really hard to keep this answer short because this has been the bulk of really what I've studied academically and professionally for the last couple of decades. But here's what I would say. Um, the effects of ecosystems after a fire are really dependent upon a few factors. One's dependent upon the vegetation type. So are we talking about a grassland or are we talking about a dense woodland or a forest, a marsh even, for example? Um, what kind of fire intensity are we talking about? Did it burn up everything all the way to the treetops or was it patchy? Um, and then the seasonality actually matters. So this is really getting into fire ecology. Did it burn during the growth season or during the dormant season? Did it burn during the winter or the summer? That can have sometimes subtle effects and sometimes dramatic effects on how the ecosystem changes. And then beyond that, we have what we would call first order and second order effects. The first order effect is what happened the day of the fire? How much fuel was consumed? How high up on the tree canopy um, were the leaves scorched? How much of the living vegetation was top killed? And then really, then beyond that, we have second order effects, which really gets into the successional dynamics. How does how do the system respond? How do the plants respond? Which ones are favored? Which ones are not favored? How do the competitive dynamics shift um, after that fire? Um, many species may germinate by seed. A whole lot of species, believe it or not, resprout with uh, perennial plants will resprout by uh, dormant buds in the plant material, in the roots, in the crown of the plant. Um, so it, it's a whole mix of stuff, um, depending on kind of everything from how hot the fire was to what system we're in to what uh, what time of year it was and if it was a wet year or a dry year. And then again, do we have professional biologists and land managers working that system after the fire or are we just going to walk away from it? Or are we going to graze it too soon before the system really can respond the way it needs to? It sounds like there are a lot of variables and a lot of complexities. It, it, there's no one size fits all. It sounds like it depends a lot on the time of year, the type of landscape, maybe what the land use was before and after. It sounds like there are really many different variables that can affect this answer. Yeah, absolutely. It's very case dependent. 
Have, have you ever gone into a fire zone and what you saw on the ground is a little different than what you expected? Or, you know, with your decades of work in this field, pretty much do you know what to expect when, when you get out there? You know, depending on the type of landscape you went in, what the climate's been like, what the land use has been like, time of year. Do you mean, um, are you talking about like after the fire, those more second order kind of effects? Or do you mean during the fire itself, how it's burned? Well, maybe, maybe we can talk about after at first, and then I want to get into during fires as well, because I think you've mentioned before you've been on the ground, you know, during fires as well. What about like after fires? Have you ever walked on a landscape and said, wow, that's, that's a little different than I, than I would have expected? Or do you feel like you've kind of been on the ground so much and seen so much after fires that you, you kind of know what to expect more? No, I would say we're, I'm always surprised somehow. And usually it's, it's pleasantly surprised. So I'm, part of my work is in land management is conducting vegetation surveys. So this is, we run transects or quadrats across the landscape, collect data on the vegetative community. I can say very often before a fire, the plant diversity is pretty low. It's common stuff. You can go through the a transect really quickly, knock it out, bam, 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 bam. The first growing season after a fire, very often it is a laborious process. You've got books laid out on the tailgate trying to figure out what is this stuff that's coming back. The diversity's through the roof. It's a chore doing plant surveys after fires just because of the explosion of richness and diversity. So that's where a lot of the surprise comes in. And then you take, like I said, the intensity and the seasonality of the fire and you throw in this cocktail of weather events that's completely unpredictable. And very often you'll have a few species that you never would have guessed that for them, that was the magic recipe and they just go crazy. Um, I see. Maybe the climate is just right. The land use is right. And then you added a fire to it. Maybe that's what they needed to become extremely prolific. Absolutely. And they're, sometimes they're the common dominant plant species and some they are really, really minuscule uncommon, sometimes even rare species that just, for whatever reason, that combination of fire characteristics and weather characteristics that particular year was exactly what it needed and it just goes gangbusters. Well, that has to make things a little bit exciting, right? Because you're going out there on the landscape and maybe don't quite know what you're going to see until you get out there. Absolutely. And like I said, that's why I bring, you know, an armload of books because I'm I'm not going to know everything that's out there. So I'm going to need some backup. It's really interesting. We all have our anecdotes of, you remember that one year where that one weird plant just went crazy after that one fire? Yeah, that was weird. Yeah, we were with Kelly Lyons last night at this field site at Christine, Texas, south of San Antonio. She brought her field book and she was just like giddy. She, she just loves getting out there and seeing the biology. But again, it was walking through this landscape and, you know, what's going to be coming back to life and, and what's this pattern going to look like? You know, it was kind of fun to, to walk through that landscape with her, but I see what you're saying, just having those field guides and, and kind of seeing what's out there. Um, it's probably, um, I'm sure a little bit of a surprise sometimes. Now, I want to ask you too, uh, you know, what about during fires? Have you been involved with prescribed burns and, and what does that look like? And, and um, also just maybe some insights on why we do prescribed burns. Yeah, so my, the first prescribed burn I was ever on was right around 2000, maybe 2001. And since then, I've 
been involved, most of them in leadership positions on well over 100, maybe approaching 130, 140 prescribed burns, mostly in Texas, some in the upper Midwest. Um, yeah, and so the interesting, I guess one thing I'll say uh, is fire science has actually gotten pretty good. Like I showed you this in book, but now, now most of our tools are online. This is kind of old school. Nobody carries this book anymore, but um, fire science has actually gotten pretty great. So if we know a handful of characteristics about the weather and fuels, we can oftentimes predict with surprising accuracy how that fire is going to burn and where it's going to burn. So that's been one interesting thing. And that's really helpful when you're trying to use fire as a tool and trying to apply it safely. Um, yeah. Would, would um, land managers do prescribed burn sometimes because of the quantity of fuel that there's just too much, too much grassland or too much, you know, uh, bush in the understory or something like that to kind of take out some of those fuels or am I not thinking correctly about one of the reasons for prescribed burn? Yeah, typically. So if you, one reason for burning could be simply to reduce fuel loading. Yeah, you're talking about fuel loading. So how much biomass of fuel is there? Uh, if we're burning strictly for the purpose of fuel loading, we're talking about wildfire mitigation. So we're temporarily, temporarily removing fuel, burnable fuel from the landscape and, and hopefully for a longer period of time reducing uh, that fuel load so that, uh, if that if there is a wildfire in that area, it burns at lower intensity. Um, that's oftentimes hard to do um, simply because if you're trying to implement fire in a fire prone area for the purpose of protecting homes or businesses or structures, you need to burn near those homes or businesses or structures. So now you're in the situation of implementing a fire with high fuel loading right next to a bunch of valuable infrastructure, and that just gets really difficult. Um, from an ecological or land management perspective, we, yeah, we also may want to simply reduce biomass. Uh, one, I'll give you one example. Uh, since you've been touring around Central Texas, there's a, a, an invasive exotic grass in throughout most of Texas now. The Latin name is Bothria Chloa Ishimum. Uh, the common name is King Ranch Blue Stem or Old World Blue Stem. And one of the issues with King Ranch Blue Stem is um, in a rangeland, it's not very palatable. So the cattle will eat cattle, horses, whatever livestock. We'll eat most of the other native plants first and they'll leave King Ranch Blue Stem for last. If it's not grazed, um, Every year when it greens up and then cures out in the winter, that buildup of cured plant material is called thatch. And so it can get grass thatch. For some reason, King Ranch Bluestem thatch can get quite thick, which means that other plants don't grow through it very well. So if we're looking at a grassland restoration or management, you may want to just burn off that KR field to get rid of the thatch. Um, so that the seed bank or other perennial plants can grow through it. Also in burning off that uh, King Ranch Bluestem thatch, it sort of prepares the seed bed if you're going to do any seeding, direct seeding um, of any uh, additional species that you want to introduce into that system. So you might survey an area, see a lot of King Ranch Bluestem thatch and just say that's kind of 
producing this um, mat or a, a block that's keeping a lot of other grasses and plants from growing there, if, if you do a prescribed burn, you're kind of opening up the landscape for other grasses. Is that correct? Yeah, absolutely. The, the structure of the grassland may be there, but the species composition isn't there because the one dominant invasive species. And so simply removing the thatch gives you the opportunity to either release or introduce more plant diversity. Same idea in a forest or a woodland. So forests and woodlands, tree dominated landscapes, if they're not managed, if they're not disturbed very often, will just get thicker over time. So then you have a very dense canopy and a very depauperate understory. So prescribed burns applied with the right intensity and the right seasonality can begin to thin out that forest or the woodland to allow a little more sunlight from the to, to come through the canopy and, and release uh, species that may be in the understory or give the opportunity to do some planting in the understory. When you do a prescribed burn, let's say to burn off some King Ranch blue stem thatch, um, would it often come back pretty quickly or, or often then not come back so quickly at all? I'm, I'm, I'm sure it's case by case, but in general, you often see the thing that you burn come back quite quickly afterwards or not so much? In the case of King Ranch blue stem, it's interesting. The seasonality is really important now. If we burn King Ranch blue stem in the dormant season, it comes back really quickly. If we burn it during the growing season in the summer, uh, it's variable, but on average, uh, it's going to be reduced. And if we can keep reintroducing fire during the growing season, and at the same time, we're reintroducing uh, a diversity of other species through seeding projects, then yeah, we can, we can get that King Ranch blue stem actually down to very low levels. You've talked about how advanced fire science has become. This seems like an example here where like, it sounds like a lot of research has gone into understanding this, even down to the seasonality, depending on what time of the year you're doing a prescribed burn can really affect how quickly it comes back, if it comes back at all. Yeah, absolutely. We have not one, but two uh, scientific journals with the, with the words restoration ecology in them. One's called restoration ecology, the only one is called ecological restoration. So that's how prolific the science is in, in this area has become. Wow, Matt, thank you so much for those insights on fire. We really covered a lot there. Matt shared an interesting observation that fire is often not an impenetrable wall of flame. I saw this when I was out in the field. The fire I geotracked to out there in central Texas had knee-high flames, and it was burning actually quite slowly in an irregular pattern. It was very easy to walk into the burn zone without burning myself. He also mentioned that fire often burns houses through an ember wash as embers blowing on the wind may land on roofs. This confirms the importance of building with fire-resistant shingles in dry landscapes. Matt also mentioned an interesting observation about the explosion of biodiversity he often finds after a wildfire. He said he likes to get out there with a field guide to help him understand what he's seeing. This helped me see a common theme in this episode. In our field work, Dr. Kelly Lyons also brought a field guide with her. These guides are books that help scientists identify plants through photos and text describing characteristics of these plants. This encouraged me that even professional experts with decades of experience in these landscapes 
need help interpreting the environment, and it reminded me that we're all learning when we're out there in nature. Matt also helped me understand the function of prescribed burns. He mentioned that although sometimes it can be done to reduce fuel loading, from a man from a land management perspective, the utility of a burn may be to open up the landscape when one species of plant becomes dominant and may overwhelm everything else at ground level. Thanks to both Matt and Kelly for joining us on this episode of the GeoTrek podcast. If you have thoughts or questions about this episode, please join our online discussion in our Facebook group called GeoTrek the Community. This is where we like to interact with people after the episode airs. On behalf of the GeoTrek production team, thank you so much for listening. This is Dr. Hal signing off until the next episode of the GeoTrek podcast. Hey everyone, this is Dr. Hal. Thank you so much for listening to the GeoTrek podcast. If you're wondering how we come up with such interesting topics each week, we rely on an amazing global community to help direct our scientific fieldwork, articles, and podcasts. If you have an idea for a topic or can connect us to an outstanding future podcast guest, please reach out to us on our website at geo-trek.com or on our Facebook group called GeoTrek the Community. On behalf of our GeoTrek production, Team, this is Dr. Hal. I'll catch you on the next episode of the GeoTrek podcast.